Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 27, then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. It is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. In chapter 14, we move quickly from the plot to kill Jesus in verses 1 and 2. And the betrayal of Judas in verses 10 and 11. The preparation in verses 3 through 9 of his body. The Passover meal in verses 12 through 26. And now Jesus will give predictions in verses 27 through 31. Jesus will predict that he will be deserted by all in verses 27 and 28. He will be denied by one in verses 29, 30 and 31. Which begs a question. How does Jesus deal with our failure? How does he anticipate it? What about our failure to be loyal? What about our failure to be strong? We would much rather talk about faithfulness than failure. Just like I would much rather be talking about how we're going to the playoffs instead of coming not going to the playoffs. Failure has been called the line of least persistence. Some have said that there, the two hardest things in life to handle are failure and success. This morning I read, sadly, of a 26-year-old young man who was a genius, a prodigy, who had made unprecedented uh, inroads into science and technology, most notably in the area of computer technology. He was one of those geniuses who founded several companies and made millions of dollars. And because of the strength of his genius, he dropped out of Stanford. He was a champion, if you will, of information technology. He hung himself this morning. How is it possible... To be so bright, yet in such a dark place. So gifted, and yet so full of despair. Stephen Pyle wrote a book called The Incomplete Book of Failures. He tells the story of the strike by British firemen in January of 1978. And the British Army had to assume all of the firefighting duties for Great Britain. Thus, when an when the cat of an elderly lady in South London became trapped up a tree, she summoned the army unit. They came out in force. They delivered the cat. They discharged their duty. The lady invited the whole brigade over for a sit-down tea. And driving off, they ran over the cat. 
even when things start out right, they don't always end right. Even when you have the purest motives and the purest intentions of doing what's right, it doesn't always turn out right. If we remove the failures in the Bible, there's not a whole lot left, is there? Adam and Eve failed. The Apostle Paul failed. Peter failed. David, Israel's greatest king, a man after God's own heart, failed. Moses, giant among the Israelites, giver of the law, deliverer of the people, failed. Jacob, father of Israel, failed. Isaac, the son of the promise, failed. Abraham, progenitor of Israel, father of the faithful, prototype of all who are righteous through faith, failed. Who hasn't? Who hasn't come short in their thinking? Who hasn't fallen short in their speaking? Who has been less than perfect? In all that we say, and all that we do, we understand that we are weak. We understand that we fall short. It doesn't take a whole lot to convince us that when the Bible says, for all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God, there's none righteous, no, not one. It's easy for us to understand how that's true. We are weak, and he's strong. And in order for us to please God, in order for us to experience forgiveness of sin, in order for us to embrace the new nature, the Holy Spirit nature, it's going to require the death of a Savior and the resurrection of a Savior. We have to receive a God-given resurrected power in order for us not only to know Him, but to love Him and to live for Him. And so the passage begins with the servant's tenderness in the face of failure. Look at verse 27 again. It says, then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. The Lord, the Lord predicts all of the disciples will be afraid and ashamed That very night. What night is it? It's the night that he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember the Passover has already taken place. They've left Jerusalem. They've passed over the the brook Kidron. They find themselves on the Mount of Olives. And it is pitch black. It is after midnight. This is going to be the night when they must watch. And this is going to be the night when they must pray. And then Jesus says, all of you are going to be made to stumble because of me this night. Where is that prediction found? Zechariah chapter 13 verse 7. The Bible says that like his predecessors, he's the good shepherd. He is the shepherd after God's own heart. He is, David was a type and a picture, but Jesus is the true shepherd. Jesus is the one who loves the sheep and will give himself for the sheep. Jesus understands that it is the shepherd's responsibility to take care of the sheep, not the sheep's responsibility to take care of the shepherd. But Jesus says, Just like it says in Zechariah 13, 7, the shepherd will be smitten. The sheep will panic. Jesus points out something that each and every one of us have to come to grips with. And that is that God was behind his 
suffering and his death, God has a purpose for Jesus dying. And that purpose is going to be an eternal purpose. And one day, Peter will wake up and he will realize that purpose has come true after the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension into heaven. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23 and 24, Peter will preach him being delivered by the determined purpose and the foreknowledge of God, you have taken away, lawless hands have crucified, and you've put him to death, verse 24, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Peter will understand later that God had a plan and a purpose. It's interesting that in every instance that Jesus quotes the Old Testament prophecy, every single time he insists that the prophecies relate to him. When the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3 that a woman is going to give birth to a Savior, when the Bible says that he will be born of the seed of Adam, that he will be born of the woman, that he will be born through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that he will be born through the line of Judah, when it anticipates that he'll be born in Bethlehem, when it anticipates that he will suffer and die and come back to life each and every time Jesus insists that the Old Testament anticipates, reveals, promises, foreshadows himself. He tells the religious leaders, you search those scriptures because in them you think that you have life, but they are those which testify of me. Augustine famously said the Old Testament is in the old, the New Testament in the old concealed, the Old Testament in the new revealed. And so Jesus insists that this anticipation, this revelation, this promise is about him. And then he predicts that the shepherd will be stricken. And that the sheep will panic. He's predicting their failure. That prediction reveals his knowledge. Not only of the events that are about to take place. But of our weakness. This would do what it was intended to do. To remind the disciples of his tenderness. Of his compassion. Of his care. Part of the point is to remind them. And give them a safe way to come back to Jesus. And you're going to see that in just a moment. Because even though the prophecy has the initial effect of stirring distress in the hearts of the disciples, they're going to come to understand how the prophecies of the Old Testament not only anticipate his ministry, his suffering, his death, but also their failure. And so when Jesus says, all will be made to stumble. Because of me. The Greek verb translated made to stumble is translated by the King James version of the Bible offended. It's a very long Greek verb. Scandalize sethe. It's from the verb scandalizo. It's closely related to the noun scandalon. You probably can hear roots and remnants of that word in a cognate in the English language. Scandal. 
When something is scandalous, it's something that we trip over. In that ancient world, it was a stumbling block. It was an obstacle. It was an impediment. One of the shades of meaning in the verb scandalizo is the trap or the stick or the trigger of the trap. When I was a little kid growing up, we didn't have a whole lot to do. And so we would trap chipmunks in the Mojave Desert. And the way we would do it was we would build a box of wire and we would put a piece of peanut butter or some nuts or some fruit or some lettuce to attract them and then we would tie it to a string and when it would enter the trap we would pull the string and the trap would fall that's this word it's the trap stick it's the trigger it's the mechanism which causes entrapment for those of you who fish it is the bait which you place on the hook in order to entice the prey Jesus is warning his disciples it is pitch black the garden of gethsemane and the prayers and the great drops of blood that are about to be spilled from Jesus's brow he begins to talk to them Jesus is warning them. There's a trap. There's a pitfall. There's an obstruction. We have to proceed with caution. This night is going to bring confusion, possible entrapment, certain disappointment. This is going to be the night of terror. This is going to be the night of trial. This is going to be the night when we need to watch and pray. And so when are we most likely to fail? Almost certainly when we disregard what Jesus has to say. By the way, when Jesus said, all of you are going to be made to stumble. What do you suppose is going to happen? All of them are going to be made to stumble. Jesus is never wrong. One of the advantages of being the second person of the Trinity and having the whole Bible be about you is it's pretty safe to say that when you say something, it's going to happen. And Jesus, as he prophesies about his life and about his death and about his resurrection and about his return and about the circumstances, you can rest assured that it is going to happen. When are we most likely to fail? When Jesus says, I need you to proceed with caution and then you don't proceed with caution. When are we most likely to fail? It's when we... Refuse to believe that we are weak and fallen and imperfect. We are weak in what we think and the way we act and in the way we perform. We have a tendency to trust ourselves rather than trust the Lord. And I need you to understand what is happening. Jesus is weaning the disciples away from the weakness of the flesh. He's trying to teach them a valuable lesson. And part of the valuable lesson is, listen carefully, what I say is true. Listen carefully, I love you. Listen carefully, the circumstances that we are facing, I've anticipated. Listen carefully, your failure, I've made a provision for it. Trust in yourself, and you're doomed to disappointment. The man that trusts God is the man that can be trusted. 
This is what the Bible means in Psalm 37, verse 5, when it says, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him. He will bring it to pass. Proverbs 29, 25, The fear of the Lord brings a snare. Whoever puts his tr- The fear of man brings a snare. Whoever puts his trust in the Lord will be safe. I read the story this week of a pilot who was experiencing difficulty and landing his plane because of a dense, thick, impenetrable fog and the airport decided to bring him in by radar and as he began to receive directions from the ground he suddenly remembered that there was a tall pole in the flight path and he appealed in panic to the control tower about it and the reply came bluntly you obey instructions we'll take care of obstructions you obey instructions We'll take care of obstructions. That not that exactly like the Christian life? How like a Christian when they pray, I can't see what's going on around me. The Lord from heaven says, I can, I, I can see. Lord, I, I can't see into the future. I've already been there. Lord, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I know exactly how it's going to turn out. Lord, I don't know if obedience is the right course of action. When has disobedience helped you? As a matter of fact, it gives us a peek into the second verse. Look what it says. The servant's encouragement to return to him. Look at verse 28. It's, it's, like, it's like a sunburst. But after I have been raised, I will go before you into Galilee. Jesus anticipates their fear and their failure and then reminds them that their fear and their failure will not cause him to disown them. There's so much more in here, but I want to start there. Jesus anticipates the fear. Jesus anticipates the failure. He reminds them that their fear and failure won't cause him to disown them. You mean I'm going to fail? You mean I'm not going to, I'm not going to do everything that, the way I'm supposed to do it? But after I am raised... Question, is Jesus, in verse 28, predicting his resurrection from the dead? By the way, is that going to happen? Do they believe him? They really don't. If the rest of chapter 14 and the rest of chapter 15 is any indication of what they genuinely, truly fully believe is they don't believe that he's going to be raised from the dead. But he says right here, I'm going to be raised from the dead and I'm going to go before you to Galilee. I want you to keep your little finger on that word Galilee because I'm going to remind you of something that here Galilee in part means home. Galilee is the place where they first met Jesus for the most part. Galilee is the place where they first decided to follow him. Galilee is the place where they first heard the words of Jesus. Galilee is the place where the promises were first heard. Galilee is the place where the miracles were were experienced. Jesus says after the resurrection, he's going to be waiting for them in the Galilee. Do you understand what he's saying? He's in effect saying, when I come back to life... Meet me in the Galilee. The resurrected Jesus is the source of power. The resurrected Jesus is the source of strength. Jesus reminds them to return to the resurrected Jesus. Now think about this for a moment. Jesus has been blunt. 
You will fail. You will stumble. Now Jesus is just as blunt. Jesus will go in before them into the Galilee. Their failure, even at this pivotal point, even in this dark moment, won't cause Jesus to reject them. That's part of what you need to focus on. You're going to fail. No, we're not. Um, I'm going to come back to life. No, you're not. Hey, when I come back to life, you need to understand something. I'm going to be there for you. I want you to pause for a moment. I want you to allow that glorious truth to sink deep into your heart and your soul for just a moment. Why is this important? Because no matter how deep your failure, no matter how wicked your disappointment, no matter how grave your offense, no matter how dark the departure, Jesus will take you back. What if I've done really bad things? Jesus will take you back. What if you've disappointed Jesus? Jesus will take you back. This March 3rd, I'm going to be celebrating 40 years As a Christian. During those 40 years, there's been times of great joy and great sorrow. Of great love, but also of great disappointment. You know, I got saved in March 3rd, 1973 at Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa. And when I've ever found myself in a dark place, when I've ever found myself in a difficult place, when I've ever found myself in a disappointing place, when I've, when, when I've lost my way, I would always go back to Calvary, Costa Mesa. I would go back to the, the corner of, of Sunflower and And MacArthur Boulevard, I would go there because that's the place. That's the place where I first met Jesus. That's the place where I confessed my sin. That was the place where I experienced the true and living and resurrected Jesus. And so if you find yourself in a circumstance that is dark and difficult and disappointing, my advice to you is to go to the place where you first met Jesus. Where you experience the resurrected Jesus. Go there. And remember that he'll take you back. You can rest assured that the resurrected Jesus will embrace you. That's what it means when he says, but after I've been raised, I will go before you. Into the Galilee. And he'll go before you. He'll go before you. He went before Paul, before Paul went to prison. He went before Peter, before he's going to face that execution. No wonder the Bible says in Acts chapter 8, verse 32, Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness. Pray to God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Proverbs 28, 13, he that covers his sin shall not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes their sin will have mercy. And so the Bible says, guess what? If you will confess your sin and forsake it, if you will turn from it and turn to Jesus, Jesus will take you back. The death of Jesus speaks of the love of God and the resurrection of Jesus speaks of the power of God. 
And so what does it mean when Jesus says, but after I've been raised? Well, it means that God is satisfied and glorified. It means that your sins are gone in Ephesians 1.7. It means you're accepted in Christ, Ephesians 1.6. It means you're united to Jesus in Colossians 2.12. Every foe is vanquished, Colossians 2.15. We live forever with him, John 14.19. The Holy Spirit is given to the believer, John 17.39. Remember, Jesus says, if I go, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and he's going to be with you and he's going to be in you. He's going to make a provision for the way you think and the way you speak and the way you really live your life. And look at how it's responded. Just the servant's willingness to confront the failure. Look what Peter says. Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Do you understand what Peter's saying? He can't imagine himself denying the Lord. It leaves him indignant. Others might fail, not Peter. And by the way, his boast is complicated by pride. Look what the text says. Even if all are made to stumble. Do you understand what Peter's doing? He can't help resisting, comparing himself by the people who are around him. These guys, it makes perfect sense to me that they're going to bail. James, John, wimp. Yeah, when the going gets tough, they'll get going. But not me, Lord. Now, I, now I need you to, to understand what's happening. The very comment suggests that he's looking with disdain on his fellow apostles. That little spark of boast is about to unleash a forest fire because his presumption is motivated by pride. Just like sometimes me and you. Why can't you get this right? Why do you keep stumbling and falling? Why can't you read your Bible? Why can't you pray? Why can't you go to church? Why can't you be perfect? Well, you know what? I'm not perfect. But we have a perfect Savior who in his perfection loves us, died for us. We have a perfect Savior who's made a perfect provision for us in the person of himself. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, verse 31, it says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. In Peter's assessment, he can't imagine even for a moment that somehow failure and disloyalty could even happen. In verse 30, look what it says. Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that today it's after midnight in the Garden of Gethsemane. Assuredly, I say to you, even this night before the rooster crows twice, you will have denied me three times. Jesus will correct Peter's assessment from never to soon. We could see how it could happen one time. I mean, we all make mistakes, right? But twice? We, we can't attribute it to something 
more than just a personal failure. And then Jesus says three times, now we're seeing a pattern of behavior happening all in a single night. You'll remember Peter will deny the Lord outside the palace of the high priest in John chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Peter will deny the Lord, it says in Luke 22, 56, as he sat by the fire. Peter will deny the Lord about the space of one hour after that. It says in Luke 22, 59, it says, and as Jesus was being led away and the Lord turned, the Bible says in Luke 22, 61 and 62, the Lord turns, looks at Peter. Peter remembers the word of the Lord, how he had said to him before the cock crow, you shall deny me thrice. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. It says. That look from the Lord. And those bitter tears. Mark the beginning of a new life and a new vision for Peter. You see, when his eyes were filled with tears, when he was choking back the sobs, he actually began to see something that he had never seen before. He saw into the future. He saw into a future where everything that Jesus says and does comes to pass. Where everything that Jesus says and does comes true. And the same is true for you and me. We can have a similar experience. We can have a bright future in spite of a dark past. If we're willing to repent of our sin. Turn to Jesus. If we're willing to not allow the failures of the past or even the failure in the present to keep us from walking in the present. Peter's still clinging to the hope that he can love Jesus and serve Jesus and obey Jesus based on his own willpower. Peter, at this point, still trusts in his flesh. And the same is true of some of us. For whatever reason, we won't allow the power of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit to be the emboldening and strengthening feature which gives us the ability to walk not in the flesh, but rather in the Spirit. The Bible teaches that we are weak and fallen and falling. When are we most likely to fail? We are most likely to fail when we refuse to believe what Jesus has to say about us. We are most likely to fail when we trust ourselves and our own resources rather than trusting the Lord. And again, that's the huge problem. The huge problem that not simply Peter faces, but everyone who's with Jesus at this point faces. Peter must learn the lesson of trusting Jesus And his word. And in order to do that. He's going to need a God given resurrected power. He's going to need a new nature. He's going to need a new spirit. If order for us to know God and love God and honor God in order for us to have a fulfilled life that truly represents what God has for us. It means that we have to stop trusting ourselves. 
And Peter and the disciples will have to learn this lesson. But right now, they trust their own flesh. Right now, they trust their own strength. Right now, they trust their own willpower. Look what it says in verse 31. But he spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. I want to draw your attention in verse 31 to the expression, he spoke more vehemently. It's one word in the Greek language. Ek, peridzos. It is only found here in the Greek New Testament. It means more, exceedingly. It carries with it the idea of an active emphasis over and over. And so we could actually even translate this. He spoke more emphatically or vehemently. Peter's blood is beginning to boil with anger. Now, again, I want you to pause for just a moment. I want you to think about what's happening. Think about what's happening in the text. Peter questions and then condemns the words of Jesus. Jesus, you're wrong. Boy, are you wrong. You've never been more wrong. Anger will sometimes do that. It will blind us to the word of God. It will blind us to the realities of life. It will expose our weakness. Understand what's happening in the text. Peter is basically saying compromise. No failure. No falling. No. Peter translates the words of Jesus as. An insinuation of personal unreliability. You don't think I can be trusted, do you, Lord? You don't think I can be counted on. You don't think that I'm going to be there for you. (laughs) Peter, I'm sure his heart is pounding and I'm sure his head is swimming. He might be thinking, I know that I'm as good as anybody. I know that in the face of danger, I don't have to act the coward. I know that I can do what's necessary. I know that I can do what's right. I know that I will do what's right. And I know that I'll do even better than everybody around me. Prison and death are preferable to this charge of disloyalty. Carnal and wicked people are capable of great loyalty. And Peter's not alone in his self-confident boast. Look what the text says. And they all said, read it for yourself. They all said likewise. Do you understand what's happening in the text? Peter's saying, you're wrong, Jesus. And we're right. It would probably help to quickly skip to verse 50 just for a moment. In verse 50 of chapter 14, I'm going to read it. Then they all forsook him and fled. Then they all forsook him and fled. When are we most likely to fail? When we don't believe what Jesus says is true. When are we most likely to fail? When we trust ourselves. 
more than we trust the Lord. When are we most likely to fail? When Jesus says, slow down and we hurry up. When he says, caution and we throw caution to the wind. When he says, watch and we don't watch. When he says, pray and we sleep. Satan targets our minds. When Satan wanted to leave Adam and Eve into sin, Satan started by attacking the woman's mind. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. Why does Satan attack your mind? Because it's your mind That is in part made in the image of God. It is your mind where God reveals his word. It is in your mind where he reveals his will. Some Christians underestimate the value of a disciplined and informed mind. A disciplined mind is a mind that is willing to hear what God has to say and what the Bible has to say. That's why the Bible says, and do not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that you may Prove what the will of God is, that good, acceptable and perfect will. There's a reason why he attacks your mind. It's because this is the place where the will of God can be revealed and his weapons are lies. When Satan came to Eve as as the serpent in Revelation chapter 12, verse nine, it says the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. Remember, Satan questioned God's word. He didn't launch his attack by saying, oh, that's not true. He questioned God's word. It begins with, indeed, has God said? He didn't deny that God had spoken, but simply questioned whether or not what God had said is what he really meant and what he really, really meant. And that's where we're most likely to fail. When we question God's word and we ask the question, did God's word really mean what it says and says what it means? Satan's strategy continues. You owe it to yourself to rethink what God has said. Because when Satan questioned God's word, he also questioned God's goodness. And when you question God's word and you question God's goodness, you're not going to be content to just stop there. Satan will go the next step. He will deny God's word. Remember what God's word said? If you eat of the fruit thereof, you shall surely die. Satan says, you will not surely die. Look at the progression. You question God's word, you deny God's word, and then you replace God's word with your own opinion, with your own observation, with your own inclination. I want you to think about what's happening in the text. In the disciples' way of thinking, they're thinking, if Jesus has to die, then we're going to die with him. We're going to prove our love and our loyalty. What are you willing to do to prove your love and your loyalty to Jesus? Let's start off by calling him a liar. See, we laugh at the ridiculousness of it, but that's the net result, isn't it? 
Jesus, what you're saying is not true. Jesus, what you're saying can't happen. There's a reason why the disciples are thinking that. It's because they're trusting their flesh. And they're not trusting the Lord. Now remember, Satan targets your mind. What are his weapons? Lies. What is his purpose? To make you ignorant of God's will. Why? Because Satan will attack God's word because it reveals God's will. Why? Because God's will reveals God's favor. God's pleasure. God's love. That's what God's will does. It reveals his pleasure, his favor, his love for you. God's will is an expression of love for you. Now think about what Jesus is doing in the passage. He's showing his tenderness and mercy in the, in the face of weakness and failure. And if Jesus is showing his tenderness and his mercy in the face of weakness and failure, doesn't it make sense to you that he's going to be tender and merciful towards you? Doesn't it make sense to you that he's not looking for a reason to keep you away, but he's looking for a reason to draw you near? He's not looking for a a way to keep you away, but he's looking for a way to draw you to himself. Jesus is encouraging returning to him after the failure, and he tries to get the disciples to face their failure and come to grips with the fact that they can't trust themselves, that they can't rely on their own strength. But it's a lesson that is still incomplete. Because before we finish the chapter, we're going to face The pressure in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus will pray not once, not twice, but three times. I remember reading the story of Carl Walenda. He was a very famous tightrope aerialist. Shortly after Walenda fell to his death in 1978, he was traversing a 75-foot high wire in downtown San Juan, Puerto Rico. His wife was an aerialist and she discussed that fateful San Juan walk quote. She said, perhaps his most dangerous. She recalled, quote, all Carl thought about for three straight months prior to it was his falling. It was the first time he'd ever thought about that. And it seemed to me that he put all of his energies into not Falling rather than walking the tightrope. Mrs. Walenda added that her husband went so far as to personally supervise the installation of the tightrope, making certain that the guide wires were secure. Something she said he had never even thought of doing before, unquote. It became increasingly clear that when Carl Walenda poured his energies into not falling rather than walking the tightrope, he was virtually destined to fall. 
And it becomes a, a, a type and a picture of the Christian life. If you're pouring all of your efforts, if you're pouring all of your energies into not falling, into not failing, if you wake up every single morning going, God, I hope I don't disappoint you. God, I hope that I don't fail you. God, I hope that, that today is not the day that I lie, cheat, steal. I hope that today isn't the day that I do this or I do that or I do this or I do that. You're missing the point. The Bible does say, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his throne with thanksgiving. You see, the Bible teaches that our walk is a walk of faith. We walk in faith. The Bible says in Romans 6, 4, we walk in newness of life. The new life shows itself in walking in a new way. We walk in the spirit, it says in Galatians 5.16. We walk in love, it says in Ephesians 5.2. We walk in wisdom, it says in Colossians 4.5. We walk in the light, the Bible says, as he is in the light. First John, we walk in the truth. We walk in him, Colossians 2, verse 6. If you're walking in him... Instead of apart from him, if you're walking in truth instead of a lie, if you're walking in light instead of a darkness, if you're walking in wisdom instead of foolishness, if you're walking in love instead of selfishness, if you're walking in the spirit instead of the flesh, then guess what? You're not going to have to worry about falling. And so a resurrected Jesus is going to come back to life. And he's going to urge Peter, James, and John, and the rest of the disciples. Look, when this night is over, and when my death has passed, and my resurrection has come, I want you to meet me in the place where we first met. I want you to meet me in the place where we first talked. I want you to meet me in the place where I called you. I want you to meet me in the place where you first experienced the miracles. I want you to meet me in the place where all of the things that I said and did came true. Because I want to remind you of something. That I've anticipated your weakness and I've anticipated your failure and I've made a provision because guess what? I will walk with you. I will be with you. I will lead you. I will empower you by the Holy Spirit. And I'll give you an opportunity to walk in wisdom and walk in the light and walk in the truth and walk in love. If you're in a dark place, run to the light. If you're in a wicked place, then go to the source of righteousness. If you find yourself estranged from God and his love, then go to the place where you first met him. And if you've never met him, let this be the first place. Let this be the place where you experiences love, experiences forgiveness. 
Let's do that now. Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who, for whatever reason, has never cried out to you, never called out to you, never confessed their sin, their guilt, their emptiness. Lord, I pray that they would confess their guilt and their emptiness even now. Lord, they've come to a place where they believe that Jesus died on the cross for sin and he rose from the dead and that he's alive and because he's alive, he can change your life. And Lord, I pray for that man or that woman because of a series of disappointments and setbacks, personal failures and darkness, wickedness and emptiness. Lord, I pray for that man or that woman who lives in the dark dungeon of wondering if today is going to be like every day a day of failure a day of doubt a day of disloyalty a day of disappointment Lord I pray that they would come to a place where they're no longer willing to just simply focus on failing and falling but in living and walking in the light in the truth, in wisdom, in love, and in the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's.